Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks on Everything Co-op this wonderful Thursday morning. You know, we're celebrating Black History Month. And NCBA CLUSA, National Cooperative Business Association, is celebrating their 100th year this year. You know, 100 years. They got started in 1916. 1916, a little bit before our time, but some there are some folks around that's 100 years old or more. But for the most part, that's before our time. And But we're going to talk about those times today with Dr. J- Jessica Gordon-Nimhard. Dr. Jessica, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, though. I seem to have a cough right now, but I'm fine. Thank okay. you. Well, take time, take off anytime you want and get it straight, and I'll keep talking. You know, I, I looked up in 1916, a loaf of bread was $5 at the beginning of the year, and it went up, I mean, five cents. And then it was seven cents at uh, about September. It went up 40% in that one year, and a car was $300, a Model T. What what else was going on about that time? Uh, is it right before the Depression? What right. was happening with, particularly with co-ops in black America? Your The book you wrote, Collective Carriage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice, and one of the things you told me before was uh, you didn't know it was that much history. Right. When I started, I thought I'd spend a year or two trying to find some things. I'd find a few examples, and then I actually was going to move on to looking at Latinos and Native Americans and Asian Americans just to see what other subaltern groups' experiences were. But I actually still haven't gotten out of the African American experience because there's just so much there that we just didn't know. By 1915 or 1916, for example, well, 1916 actually happens to be the year that W.E.B. Du Bois starts the Negro Cooperative Guild. Or actually, he starts it in 1918, but he calls a meeting, the Amenia Economic Conferences in 1916, to start talking about economic differences and that kind of thing. He had already, in 1907, had had a conference at the University of Atlanta on black businesses and co-op businesses and had published a book in 1907 on African-American cooperatives called Economic Cooperation Among Negro Americans. So Du Bois was already heavy into his analysis of the economic crisis for African-Americans and the need for an alternative and had been talking about the ways that African-Americans survived economically by using economic cooperation in a variety of forms. So that was going on. We had in 1915 the Pioneer Cooperative Society in Harlem, New York, which was basically um, a co-op food store, but also a group practicing cooperative economics in Harlem. We already had a couple of mutual insurance companies like North Carolina Mutual in Richmond, Virginia, and the Penny Savings Bank in Richmond. Sorry, North Carolina Mutual is obviously in North Carolina. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And and, um, the 
St. Luke Penny Savings Bank that was started by Maggie Lena Walker was in Richmond. So we had already a history, a practice of African-Americans coming together and doing everything they needed in order to survive. And often what everything they needed to do was join together, pool their resources, and create something larger than any one person or family. And doing that, they were able to weather the storms. And this would have been, you know, we were already talking about before the Great Depression. During the Great Depression, when we, I assume we'll get to that, we're mm-hmm. gonna, there's just a proliferation of African-American co-ops. First, as we said, just to survive, especially to survive the Depression. And then a realization that, that the structure is really an important structure, particularly for a marginalized group who's trying to figure out how to make it in a dominant world that doesn't really want them in the economy. No one is to make it. Going back even further than that, I've gotten the sense that Native Americans, you mentioned them, and African Americans, that we brought these view, this sort of collective view of working together in tribes, that we brought this with us. This, this sort of was ingrained in us when we came over on the slave ships. Is that your sense also? Yes. There's increasing evidence that cooperativism and collectivism, communalism, was practiced in Africa. And actually, you know, my sense is that it's really a survival mechanism that every group, every ethnic group, every nation has used and continues to use. But we certainly have um, research from African philosophers and people who studied African agriculture, and of course Africa is a huge continent, so I'm trying not to generalize. Certainly there were different nations and civilizations throughout Africa that probably were at different stages, but it seems that in almost every place the connection between humanity, society, the land, even spirituality was all practiced collectively and in a way that was very much dignified and The primacy was human dignity and human survival and human caring for each other. And I think we can say the same thing about people who have studied the culture and economics of Native Americans. But really, um, the Europeans also had their own practice, which is what dominates our understanding of co-ops in the U.S. So it's not to say that the other groups didn't also bring cooperativism Mm -hmm. to the U.S., but to just say that African-Americans, like all the other groups, brought cooperativism from their own continent and then mixed it, combined it with what they were learning from what the Europeans brought and then how the U.S. was creating its own set, you know, its own mode of cooperation. So it's really a mixture, but recognizing that each group actually brings its own. When I first got into this field 20 years ago, there wasn't that recognition that every group brought a history and a legacy of co-ops. There was this notion that co-ops only came from the Europeans and only came from and only came out of the Rochdale movement in the 1844 in, in England, and that anything that was cooperative had to have those roots instead of recognizing the other, you know, the cultural and economic roots from a myriad of civilizations around the world. I was in Puerto Rico um, for. National Association of Housing Co-ops Conference, and we had a Puerto Ricanian give a the keynote speech, and he went back to the 1400s talking about co-ops in Peru and this, yeah. this whole sort of sense that, yep, it came from all kinds of different places. Okay, so we have cooperativism coming from Africa and Latin America, Europe, all over. 
figured if we go to Asia, we could find it there. I'm sure. <laughs> okay. And, in, you know, if we want to do U.S. history in 1935, oh, gosh, what was the name of the group? It was actually a Christian group invited the fo- foremost cooperative leader from Japan to Harlem to talk about um, cooperatives. And I'm going to mess up. I can't even remember his name right now. I'm sorry. I'm trying to quickly look it up. But anyway, just to show that there was even this synergy between what was happening around the world um, and recognizing that cooperativism was farther ahead of us in Japan at that time than it was here. And they brought him as kind of a motivational speaker. They launched some economic programs after that in Harlem. I think it was the Federation of Churches in Christ or something like that who Mm -hmm. brought him on a tour, and um, one of the places was Harlem, so that he could talk about how co-ops could be used. So it's just, as I said, it's interesting when you look back in the history, the history isn't even monocultural, but what we what we remember, what we're taught is monoculturally taught. My sense is that the Europeans will write things down, and then when they write it down, they claim, here's where it starts, <laughs> the modern right. co-op. Right, okay. nothing else existed except what they wrote down. Also, it reminds me that I had the opportunity and the privilege of going to the U.N. for the first time uh, in 2011 to sell it in the October-November time frame where the U.N. declared 2012 as a year of the cooperative. And I was blown away of what was going on in Russia in China and Japan and Argentina and all over the world what was going on in co-ops. It seemed like it was more going on around the world than here in the U.S. Is that your sense so. at all, too? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, we actually talked about this last year when I was on. The U.S. is not that hmm, open, right, to alternative economics, right? We're pretty much under the influence of the domination of capitalism. And I don't think other countries are quite as, hmm, what would be the word? Well, somebody said on a program once that we we love, we're in love with this capitalism. yeah, and it's, he- it's hegemonic in the U.S., and which means it's so dominant that it doesn't really allow for any other things. Now, that doesn't mean we haven't had and we don't have a long co-op history here. It just means that it's not as big as other places, and it's not as deep, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of it has been struggled to keep the co-ops open. A lot of it has been isolated, right, co-ops just operating in isolated silos. However, you know, and I can't hesitate to tell people that the co-op movement is not small in the U.S. Remember, some of our largest agricultural businesses are co-ops, like Land of Lakes and CHS and that kind of thing. So we actually do have a kind of hybrid economy. It's just that the the co-op part of it is very much hidden and quiet and not seen as any major players. The other thing that's really interesting, if you go to the International Cooperative Alliance meetings, because we have such a large population, they give you delegates Mm -hmm. and voting power based on how many people in co-ops are in the National Co-op Association, right? So NCBA actually is one of the larger co-op associations in the world. So we have one of the higher numbers of delegates with voting power, even though per capita we have many fewer, uh, or the percentage of our co-ops in our economy is much smaller than, say, Canada, which has like 30% of their economy as co-ops, or Italy, but they have much smaller populations. You know, um, some of the lessons that you talked the last time is that many African-American leaders have articulated a cooperative economic development strategy. 
Um, but we, I don't, I, I guess in growing up in the sixties, I didn't hear that. I didn't, right. I haven't heard this and nowhere in my formal education that I hear anything about co-ops. Um, but also it, it's like, it's interesting going back, reading your book and seeing how prevalent it has been even in the sixties. Right. So could you talk a little bit about what, what happened in the corporate world during the civil rights movement? Yes. So one of the things I found, and I had known a little bit about, especially some of the Black Panther programs, and John Curl, who's a co-op historian, and his books, especially his, um, oh, gosh, my brain is really dying. I can't remember the name of his book. For all. How are you spelling Curl, John? C-U-R-L, John Curl. Okay. Gosh, okay, I'll think of the name of the book later. But anyway, he actually does a great job of giving us a little bit of history from all the different ethnic groups in the U.S. involved in co-ops, especially worker co-ops. And so he's actually documented a lot of the Black Panther stuff, so I didn't bother to do, you know, I, I, I used a lot of his research. But basically what we know is that if you look at any of the civil rights, national civil rights organizations, and even probably a lot of local ones, they were practicing cooperative economics, even though their public face and the things they were talking about publicly were usually about civil civil political rights. Now, the Panthers, of course, were more radical, so they weren't just focused on voting rights and political rights, but they didn't they still didn't really talk about their economics. They mostly talked about self-defense. they did have their, they had their health clinics. They had their children's programs. They talked about uh, history and children, teaching children history and African-American studies, that kind of thing. But Dr. Jessica, we have to take a, a break. Okay. Uh, we have to take our first break, and we'll come back and talk about the Black Panthers and other leaders and their role with co-ops and economic uh, development. We'll be right back. Don't touch the Great. dial. 1450 WOL. Welcome back. This is Vernon Oaks on Everything Co-op. We have Dr. Jessica Gordon M. Hard with us this morning uh, talking about history. She's written a book, Collective Carriage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. You know, you were talking about the Black Panthers before we left and other leaders and how they have encouraged cooperative business. Can you continue with that conversation? Yes, and I did remember John Curl's book. It's called For All the People. Okay. <laughs> I apologize to John Curl for messing it up earlier. Anyway, that's also a, a fabulous book that people should be reading if you're interested in this area. And it's not just about African Americans and the co-op movement, but it's the whole U.S. co-op movement. So uh, the civil rights era, the Black Panthers in particular, I was saying were practicing cooperative economics, even though that wasn't what they were talking most strongly about. Though if you look at their 10-point platform, they do talk about being socialist. But their actual economic practices were mostly collective, sometimes informal collectives, and sometimes more formal cooperatives, like they had a shoe, a collective shoe factory, cooperative bakery. Their health clinics were basically run as cooperatives, so they gave free health care. That's one that people really never talk about, though a woman just wrote a book on that. And, of course, I'm not going to remember the name, but what I remember that she told us was when she went to the main library at Berkeley, which has a lot of the Panther files, and this would have been about two or three years ago, she was told she was the first person who ever asked to see the pictures of the black Panther doctors and clinics. 
Mm. that everybody, the only thing people ever asked them for before were the pictures of the formations with the guns and maybe a picture of a, the, the free breakfast program. But nobody ever asked for the pictures in the collection of the health care programs and seeing panthers who were doctors and service providers and that kind of thing. So a lot of this, for some reason, part of it, I guess, was what they thought was most important to present, but also part of it was they were doing the cooperative economics both as way to survive so they could keep doing what they needed to do politically without being uh, under the thumb of other people in their economic sphere, right? So instead of working for white people and then getting retaliated against because they were a panther, they were creating their own economics. But also because of all the red baiting and anti-communist rhetoric mm -hmm. in the 50s and early 60s, it really wasn't profitable for African-Americans to talk about cooperatives and doing cooperation. Andrew Young actually talks about that in his autobiography, I believe, that it was really, you just talked about civil rights, right? That was the thing that people could rally around, mm -hmm. that if you wanted to talk about economic justice, you got a lot less agreement, and then it was also much more dangerous because that's where they would try to stop you. And, of course, we even see that with Martin Luther King, right? The minute he starts talking about a poor people's campaign and economics, he's assassinated. So it's amazing. don't talk about it that much. But then, you know, even groups like SNCC, they were doing agricultural co-ops and credit unions and other co-ops all throughout the South. That was actually their day-to-day -day community organizing, even when they were trying to do voter rights and that kind of thing. And it's the same with pretty much any of the organizations. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, no. I, I thought you had finished because it's amazing once you start talking about economics, how it would arouse people. They don't want us in the economic sphere. They don't want us to own our own businesses, their own stores, their own towns. And the whole sense of slavery for me was all economic base. You right. Free yeah. labor. Right. They pretend that it wasn't. They pretend it was paternalism and that African people couldn't, you know, couldn't handle their own economics and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it is one of the strongholds and it's internalized. Right. So that even African-Americans either believe that we can't do economics or make our own economic decisions or we're afraid to talk about it because um, we know the consequences are so bad. And, and, you know, again, that's partly why the book was called Collective Courage, because it took a lot of courage and persistence to continue to do alternative economics, particularly cooperative economics, in the face of both the ideological and the economic and the physical sabotage and anti-co-op sensitivity. The other thing I did want to say while we were talking about the 60s and the civil rights organizations, the other thing that all the civil rights organizations did, the five major ones, SNCC, uh, NAACP, CORE, Urban League, and I can't remember what the fifth one was, they created the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which is a, a regional organization in the South to promote cooperative economic development among low-income farmers and people of color, particularly African-Americans. They came together at a meeting back in 65, I believe, and put together a grant that got funded by both Ford Foundation and the U.S. Department of Commerce, I believe. I think one of the economic opportunity grants. And those two grants are what started the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. So again, those civil rights groups didn't make a big deal about it. Nobody really announced that they did this. But they realized at the same time they were working for voting rights and other civil rights, they needed to help figure out what was 
going to be a viable strategy for economic survival and economic democracy. So again, these little pieces that we don't think of or we don't know about, but that are important fabric in our society, in our history, and an important partnership in the civil rights movement. You know, uh, Ralph Page, who had been the yeah. executive director of the Air Force, <laughs> I don't know, it feels like since the beginning of time, and Cornelius yeah. Blaney is their current executive director, yeah. who took over in March of last year. Both have been on the program. We've had a couple right. other people on the program. Because the, the, the knowledge and what they're doing land, I didn't even know that blacks owned that much land. And, well, uh, we used to own more, but yeah. A lot more. I think they're helping us to continue to own, right. So and I did not know that these five groups came together to help to form that. Going back to your title, your book, Collective Courage, I get that courage is doing what you know you need to do, even though you're scared to death. Scared. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And then if we can do it as a group, collectively, we have a better chance of success, uh, even yeah. in spite of lynching and whether people are li- literally taking a rope and lynching you by the neck or lynching you economically. Right. But this voter right thing, wh- what I wanted to do today is try to talk about the history and then relate it to the day so we can see what kind of future we might have if we take the lessons from the history and apply them today in places like Flint, Michigan, or yeah. in this political season uh, for the president, this whole sense of voter right is, you know, I was born in 47, so in the early 60s, I was in junior high and high school, graduated from high school in 65, mm-hmm. and we had that little bitty round TV that that, that was a lot of snow, and, uh, what we used to call it, because you could barely see it, black and white, right. and yep. we'd see all of these those. pictures, and I, and I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia, so it was, you know, going to Atlanta was would have been, or even D.C. was, uh, was like going to, I don't know, Ghana today. Uh, it was just like <laughs> yeah, it was far. almost impossible. So we'd see these pictures, and it was always voter rights. But it seemed like it was the main fight. It wasn't the fight for economics as much until the poor people's police, but all in the early 60s it was voter rights, and it seemed like we don't get that today. At least people... Americans particularly, just particularly African-Americans, how can we get more people to learn about that and get people out to vote? Hmm. Right. Well, there's so much to say. First of all, I just want to say quickly, I'm going to get off the topic for one second because you said you were from Bluefields, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I hope you noticed in the book that there was in the 1920s, there was a, a co-op at the Bluefields Colored Institute. It was a co-op supply store and a student's co-op. And that group actually was the Cooperative Society of Bluefield Colored Institute, actually was the first black organization to join CLUSA, and they joined in 1926. So you actually, you know, your hometown is a place. And, in fact, the the manager of that co-op supply store, which was run by the students, actually wrote articles about how important co-ops were to the black community in the Crisis magazine and took his students to a CLUSA conference. Jesus, I missed it. I missed that in your book. (laughs) Well, it's there. Look up Bluefield in the index. I believe it's in the index. Anyway, you'll see. So your your little town is on the map in this book. What's Um, what's amazing to me is how circle this is that I never knew anything about co-ops I went to Bluefield State. I went, grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia, went to Bluefield State, graduated, and 
you know, went on to Penn State and then Stanford and only right. got just about 20 years ago and to find out this always goes back and we have to take our next break. <laughs> we'll come back yep. and talk about this voter rights and more into this economics uh, with Dr. Jessica Nimhart. Please uh, stay with us. If you have any questions or comments, you can call in at 1-800-450-7876. 1-800-450-7876. We'll be right back. 1450 WOL. Welcome back, everybody. We have on the line with us Dr. Jessica Gordon Nimhard, who has written a book, Collective Courage, a history of African American cooperative economic thought and practice. And earlier on, she said that these co ops were used as a method of surviving, particularly during the Great Depression. And we were talking before we. Um, took the break about voter rights. We we're going to get ready to, uh, to talk about voter rights. So how does voter rights, I know that the second principle of co-ops is democratic. Participation, yeah. right? One person, one vote. And I've gotten on this program for the last two and a half years now. Uh, we are, we're only going to do it for a month. So we've been on for two and a half years and over and over again, it says the people that are in co-ops, they really get it about the uh, democratic participation. And not only do they participate in the co-ops, but they go out into the world and their communities and participate. Yeah. The question was, how do we get more people to understand the importance of this participation? Right. So history of the voting rights campaign is actually bittersweet because technically the civil rights group hit upon voting rights because JFK, John F. Kennedy, our president at the time in the early 60s, actually begged black groups to focus on voting rights and not to fight for too many other rights because he thought it was going to be too divisive and too problematic. So the groups um, made a sort of pact with him to focus on voting rights and civil rights. Um, again, it was looked upon as something that would be more palatable, that people could rally around and that whites could also connect with and support. So that's why I said it's kind of a, a conflictual thing. While we all agree and we need voting rights, and you're right, democratic participation, which is what we get in the co-op model, is so important. I think I'll come at it from two different ways. I'll come at it from the Fannie Lou Hamer way. And Fannie Lou Hamer in Mississippi in the 60s was a SNCC member and a voting rights advocate. In fact, she did voting rights training. She did voter registration drives. And then she came to co-ops afterwards. But one of the reasons she talked about coming to the co-op movement after the voting rights movement is she said it was too hard even to do voting rights. If you remember anything about Fannie Lou Hamer um, after she registered to vote, and I think on her way back from giving a, a voter registration training, she was arrested and beaten almost to death, right? She lost a kidney and hearing in one ear because of how badly she was beaten. And she said that it's not enough for us to just fight for our civil rights. We actually have to control our own economy because they can retaliate against us if we only are asking for voting rights. Right? She was a sharecropper. She also, not only was she beaten to, almost to death, but she lost her farm that she and her husband were sharecropping. She came home from uh, registering to vote, and all her things were out in the street. And the farmer said she and her husband couldn't sharecrop there anymore because they didn't want any uppity 
black person. So she talked about how if we don't have cooperative ownership, if we don't own our own land, have our own gardens, create our own food, we're, you know, trying to fight for our civil rights isn't going to go very far because we don't have the economic independence and we don't have the economic, we don't have control of our own economies. So she kind of ended up turning things on its head. Yes, we have to we have to participate in the political life because that also is where most of the decisions are made. But we have to come to that struggle from a position of at least some kind of stability and economic control. Um, and she started Freedom Farm, which was a large cooperative farm that also helped to establish uh, affordable housing, some worker co-ops uh, with women sewers, a Head Start program and child care. So she had a whole comprehensive view of what needed to surround activists and, and people in general so that we could survive. And then she said from that kind of position of strength, she thought we should go out and fight for our rights. The other way I wanted to come at it is to talk about, as you hinted, that people who are involved in cooperative economics tend to be more civically engaged because being involved in a cooperative economic relationship means you have that economic and governance participation, that one mm -hmm. person, one vote. It doesn't matter how much money you bring to it, you get your vote equally with anybody else. You have transparency, right? Cooperatives, everybody, in order to gov to do that joint governance, you have to, everyone has to understand the finances and be able to read the books. People need to understand the business and how it runs, right? So you have mm -hmm. all kinds of education, training, information, sharing of information, transparency, et cetera, that comes out of a co-op. Well, you don't just spend eight to ten hours a day in that kind of a situation and not apply it to the rest of your life. So this way, we know that, in fact, there's some research that we're trying to do more about it, the ways that people who are involved in cooperative economics also are better citizens, are more active and participatory in the rest of their lives, and understand the importance of voice, participation, democracy, and how it can really be wielded. Well, what first attracted me to co-ops was this fifth principle, which you were talking about, education, training, and information. That that has to happen. It has to be at the core right. of the, the business model that people have to understand. And I think in the food co-ops, and a lot of them, you have to pass a financial test in order to be on the board. Um, yeah, and the worker co-ops, you have to, they do, most of them do open book management, and they have to learn to read financial sheets and talk about finance and that kind of thing. Well, I grew up in math, and so that's the only thing I could read early on. <laughs> Words escaped me. But so reading the numbers is ex extremely important. I've since learned that the words are important also. So this whole sense of education, that's what came out of your book, too, and that how yeah. important this need for education is, continuing importance of education, internal to the co-op and external. Right. And I think... Um we talked about it last year, too, but I can't say it enough, right, the internal and external. So, right, first we need just public education about the model because, as we've been talking about, people don't – you don't hear about it. You don't know about it. Even when groups are practicing it, they're not, you know, proclaiming it from the hilltops, right? They're trying to keep it quiet under the radar so they don't get disturbed or, or sabotaged. Um, so the very first thing is just to make sure, as you said, with your with this – and other ways to make sure people understand the model, talk about the model, understand what it is, all the principles, how it operates, that kind of thing. The second thing is that once you're in a co-op or actually even before you 
finish incorporating your co-op, there needs to be a whole panoply of um, orientation and training about the model, how it works in your specific industry, how your particular co-op is going to work. I learned that actually from the worker co-op movement, how important it is from day one of getting people thinking about forming a co-op. And I think that the, most of the other co-ops do it too, the housing co-ops, the food co-ops. You really have to, people have to be taught and talked to about the strengths and weaknesses of the model, the elements of the model, what those seven principles are and how you operate them in an economic structure, what your industry is and understanding your industry and understanding the finances. And so we can't underestimate how important the initial training and then continuous training is because otherwise you can't really be a democratic participant in the governance of your business if you don't. Right. If you don't, you don't understand, understand no, and you know, and so we're we're learning that the programs that can do the best job of that education and training, and then continue it as they're running their businesses, the stronger the co-op is. And as I told you last time, one of the really interesting findings from my book was that pretty much every co-op, at least every African American co-op I found, started with some kind of study group, a study circle, a study group, something. If we go back to your Bluefields group. That was already at a black school. They started teaching about cooperatives and talking to the students about cooperatives and then helped them to start their own co-op business and then connected them to the larger co-op movement in the U.S. If you look at um, a group in Gary, Indiana in the 30s, which I think we already talked about, they actually started a course in the high school, in the night school part of the black high school during the Great Depression to introduce the notion of co-ops and to train people so that then they could start the co-ops that the society was was trying to do in um, gas station, credit union, and grocery store. If you look at, as I said, really any of the co-ops I can mention, they all started with people coming together, what's, what's our problem, what's the solution, and then how do we start a co-op and how do we maintain a co-op? So problem and then solution I got early on is that co-ops – solve community problems. Uh, matter of fact, one right. gentleman, Papa Sin, said if there's no problem, there's no need for a co-op. Right. Um, but this, the, the other part, and I think I told you this before, is that um, in my property management business, we're in the process of turning it over to the employees and making it work on co-op. And I thought it would take about three months. Well, we've been studying wow. now for a year. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And the, yeah. the other ones is how you make decisions together is what we've been wrestling yeah. with as a group. That's um, a huge one. And then the conflict resolution. Yeah. Um, I had a, a lady, Ruthie Wilder, from a, a housing co-op in D.C. She, I mean, in Baltimore. She's a president up there. And she was saying that the, what she learned in this co-op movement, it helped her in her life. Right. Uh, we've already talked about that. But she she worked uh, for the transit system up in, in Baltimore. Mm. I thought she was saying the conflict resolution with, within her family or with her man, you know, she learned how to resolve conflict. She said, no, I learned how to do budgeting and save money <laughs> and take care mm -hmm. of my money. Okay. Right. But it's yeah. all of those kinds of things that I find interesting about what one learns as an adult. And uh, in, for people out there listening, you don't have to have high school education. You definitely don't have to have a doctorate at education no. or anywhere in between there. What you need is desire to get your life in order and where you have control over your life and then come learn. And the other thing I've, I've learned is that when you go to co-op meetings, people really share. They don't have, right. there's no sort of holding back information. Uh, girl, what did you do when blah? And they just mm -hmm. answer the questions. Yeah. And that gets to the question you've learned that 
a lot of the co-ops was a strong world with black women. As a matter of fact, women, period, in the co-op movement, but all specifically we're talking about African-Americans. So uh, why would you suggest or why, why do you think there was such a strong role for black women in the co-op movement? Right. And just to finish about the sharing, the other thing I found was a lot of the co-ops would visit each other so they could talk about how they solved this problem or how they did this or that. So especially around the 30s and 40s, you find that one co-op went and studied the co-op, you know, the co-op in D.C. went and studied the co-op in Gary and in Richmond and in Chicago or whatever, and the co-op in uh, St. Louis went and said, you know, so there was all this inter-sharing, as you said, of information, not just within the co-op members, but across co-ops. Some of that was because there were organizations that were encouraging it, and sometimes it was just that the people who were creating it realized they needed, they didn't want to reinvent the wheel, right? They wanted mm -hmm. to learn from each other. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating about black women's role in the co-op movement and in African-American cooperatives. Some of the women, and I want to name some, some of the women we know well from other areas and some of the women we never heard of before. So an unsung hero would be Helena Wilson, who is president of the Ladies Auxiliary to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. We know the Brotherhood, right, the first official Mm -hmm. Independent Black Labor Union run by or organized and run by A. Philip Randolph. But the Ladies Auxiliary were the women members of the union and the wives of the union members. And their president, she was president for about 35 years, she was a co-op advocate. She studied cooperatives. She wrote about it in the, um, in the Black Worker, their, um, mag their magazine. She started cooperatives, especially in Chicago, her hometown, very influential, even though we never heard about her, but she was sort of the backbone behind the other projects of the Brotherhood that weren't about the actual union organizing. We have to take our we have to take our next oh, break. You gonna okay. go Ella Jo Baker? Now to talk about Ella Jo Baker, <laughs> oh, but we'll we can do back. that when we come back. We'll come back and talk about her and some others. We know her name and some others like Helena Wilson. I did not know. So right. uh, we'll be back to talk more uh, about the uh, cooperative movement in the past and how it will relate to our future. Please don't touch it down. We'll be right back. 1450 WOL. Information is power, and that's why the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program. This is Vernon Oaks bringing you information about co-ops. It's called Everything Co-op. And Dr. Jessica gordon Nimhart is our expert <laughs> in the history of co-op. You're talking about black women, Ella Jo Baker. Yeah, right. And, of course, March is Women's History Month, so I'm sort of trying to wrap up Black History Month and usher in Women's History Month. Uh -huh. but, um, Ella Jo Baker, again, we know her mostly because of SNCC. She was an advisor, actually a co-founder and advisor to SNCC in the 60s. Um, she brought young people together because she felt that they were important in the civil rights movement and that it shouldn't just be run by the older folks. The interest, and she also, as we know, she used to work for the NACP as a field organizer and had kind of um, honed their grassroots leadership development model and grassroots organizing model. What we don't know as much, though hopefully now more and more people know about this, 
One of Ella Jo Baker's first jobs after college was she was executive director of the Young Negroes Cooperative League in the 1930s. And I have been arguing that she really learned most of what she later practiced about grassroots organizing and grassroots leadership development and the importance of young people in the civil rights movement from her years and the Young Negro Cooperative League, not just applying the co-op principles, but also the notion for the Young Negroes Cooperative League was that young people should be running the movement. In this case, they were talking about the movement for economic justice. Mm-hmm and to promote cooperatives throughout the country. They had a huge, grandiose plan for having cooperatives in every city and regional co-ops and regional factories feeding into the the local co-ops and national conferences. In fact, at the first national conference where she was officially elected executive director, they had 600 people in Pittsburgh, and she made a speech about the role of women and the importance of women in the co-op movement at that conference. So she was very much aware, one, of the power of women as organizers and then the importance of women and young people as being the ones who kind of were in the forefront of this movement. And then, of course, how important cooperative economics, even though um, the Young Negroes Cooperative League only lasted about three or four years, it was formative in terms of bringing all those people together, getting cooperative notion out getting a sense that young people really needed to be movers and shakers in this movement. So Ella's one of my, you know, she's one of my heroes, sheroes in this whole thing. But I can't talk about women and be in D.C., or you guys are in D.C., mm-hmm. and not talk about Nanny Helen Burroughs, who mostly D.C. people know. When I go out in the world, most other people except um, the Baptists don't really know who Nanny Helen Burroughs is. But in D.C. we know her. Hopefully we know her. At M Street School, she started the um, Negro Women and Girls Training School, which then became the M Street School. And, of course, we have named a street after her in Deanwood, where she was had the school and where she lived. But she also was a cooperator. She started the um, Cooperative Industries of D.C. with uh, women. Uh, Again, this would be 1930s, 1935, 36, 37 women who were making almost no money or were unemployed, she pulled them together to create to make brooms and mattresses um in in their own worker co ops. And then uh they branched out actually into an agricultural co op because she was able to tap into a major grant from FDR's uh self help co op division in the Department of Commerce. And once she got that grant, she spent it on buying a farm in, well, not she, the co-op spent it in buying mm-hmm. a farm in Maryland. And they were bringing fresh produce into D.C., still, you know, in the middle, I guess, of the great, what we call the Great Depression. And she was also a spokesperson for the co-op movement. She actually attended the meetings of the District of Columbia Co-op Society, which was part of CLUSA. And there's letters in her files showing where CLUSA members were inviting her to go speak about co-ops all around D.C. and sometimes other places in the country. So even the mainstream co-op society saw her as a co-op spokesperson. And um, so she had a strong role, especially in the D.C. area around that. And then um, pretty much if you look at, you know, we've got Fannie Lou Hamer, who we already mentioned. If you look at a lot of the 
co-op documents like the group in Gary that I keep talking about, Cooperative Trading Association in Gary, Indiana in the 30s. They had a women's guild that basically kept the co-op going for the years that it was going, and that co-op is known well because its um, food co-op was the largest black grocery store in the country at its, at its time in 1936. In the 60s, right, you think about the women behind the men. So the men still kind of were the leaders or seen as the leaders, but the women were doing a lot of the work. Okay. So a group like Freedom Quilting Bee, which was a founding member of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, were sharecropping women who came together to quilt were able to buy their own factory, buy land, create uh, child care programs for their children, provide extra land for sharecroppers who got thrown off their properties for registering to vote to give them a chance to get regroup and get their own land. So lots of ways that women were instrumental in both keeping the co-ops together, doing the co-op education that was needed to do, and also stabilizing their communities. You know, it's like, how do we take these lessons and apply them today? Flint, Michigan has a lot of problems. Yep. And listening, they don't have a grocery store. It would be what we call a food desert today. So yep. how can we get these lessons to the folks at Flint to see if they can come together and solve their own problems? If they can, One of the values of co-op is self-help, right. self-responsibility. Your yeah. Pulling your resources, figuring out what resources you have. It's not always money, right? Mm -hmm. There's like six other different kinds of capital. So pulling together all those different capitals, pulling together your resources, and then leveraging what you've pulled together to do what you need to do is also important. So, you know, a place like Flint, you know, one, they just need to know that this model exists and the flexibility of this model, right, for the what it can do for you. I mean, there's Lots of different, you know, if water is their first problem, you know, then at the same time that they're suing their government for, you know, poisoning their water, they also need to be figuring out a water co-op, right? Mm -hmm. I know right now what I've heard in the news is that, you know, they've got charities giving them water and somebody in the family has to go each day and, and pick dock up on the water, right? But it seems like maybe if they got together some kind of water buying club or something, or even if they don't have to buy the water, even a club to distribute the water that's free, right? So that it wasn't so debilitating just picking up the water every day and you didn't need a car in order to get your water, right? Because mm -hmm. I worry about the people who didn't even have a car. How do they go to the distribution places and get their water, right? So thinking about what those needs are and then how, right, how you can work together. If you remember the Montgomery boycott, right, bus boycott, right, not everybody had a car for the boycott. Most people walked, but then they started sharing cars and using collective taxi systems and that kind of thing. So thinking about those kind of ways to share resources. Also, definitely, I think, uh, sorry, the thought just jumped out of my head, but I guess I was <laughs> thinking about not just water co-ops, but others. Oh, I'm thinking the food, food desert, yeah. right. We have some really great models now, starting with Greensboro, North Carolina, on low-income black communities putting together a food co-op and piecing together some money from the municipality with other private supports and some non-predatory lending. And they're uh, in Greensboro, after I think it's 25 or 30 years, they're finally, hopefully this year, this spring, opening a black-owned uh, food co-op. 
And we've got, I think, a couple other places in North Carolina, like Durham, are starting to do it. I know they're looking into it in Roxbury, Boston. So we're, And there's a group of us who are trying to put together the groups from around the country who are doing this so that they could share best practices, share challenges and solutions to challenges, and then also maybe create materials that were much more user-friendly to black, right? Because that's one of the complaints is that we don't have great materials that show how black people have done it or how low-income people have done it. And so we need to create some of those materials so that black people feel like their situation is reflected in the educational and development materials. I called the mayor of of Flint, and I did did not get through, and it's interesting she's a female, and uh, Mm -hmm. there's a community college that's run by a female that was here in D.C., and so I know her through church, and so I'm trying Mm -hmm. to reach out to some folks up there to get them this information and to see who might be interested in it. I only have a, a minute and a half or so to go, so can you... Talk a little bit about the presidential election and what we want people to go and do. But I've also found that the the off-presidential elections are as important, if not more important, because those are the local people that make the decisions about what happens in your city or your county or whatever. So the elections are so extremely important to get the right person in. There's a book out, and you know about it, Cities uh, Building Community Wealth by the— Democracy Collaborative. Collaborative, yeah. So and that's I'm what they talk about. Yeah. You are a co-founder of that? Okay. Democracy Collaborative, yes. <laughs> okay. So I was going to talk about the work I've been doing with the Southern Grassroots Economies Project and with 1DC here in D.C. And in those projects, we're, we're working with or trying to work with municipalities, particularly um, local governments with 1DC and with um, state and even federal government with this. Southern Grassroots Economies Project, and what we're trying to do there is get enabling legislation and local funding put toward co-op development. Well, you know, first just the co-op education and then co-op development. you got to stop there. It's really important that we have the right people in those government positions, right, in our city governments, in our state governments, and, of course, in our national governments who understand or care right, about real community development and understand that the co-op model can be something that can be used. Some states don't even have we got to go. Laws. I'm sorry, but we got to go, and I want to have you back on again. And thank you so very much. You have a lot of information, great information. Thank Thanks. you. Have a good weekend, everybody. Thank you. Bye now. 1450 WOL.